So, Ruth, we've been working from home, cooking from home for a long time now. Uh, what are you making? What are you, what are you, what are you chewing on? <laughs> what am I chewing on? Uh, my existential sense of dread. Is it uh, filling? <laughs> it's too filling. Um, I've been really good about cooking, but honestly, it's starting to get to me. Like, I'm tired. The longer that we stay at home, like, the harder it gets to take care of myself. And this week, I indulged a little bit. I saw that Altamirindo, one of my favorite restaurants in Adams Morgan, is open again. So I got takeout. Altamirindo, buenas tardes. Hi, I'd like to place an order for takeout. I remember that day was kind of gray, little drizzly, which was kind of a relief. I, I didn't think about it too much when I placed my order, but if I had to go pick it up, I was kind of glad it was gloomier out because it meant I'd run into less people on the street. Uh, in 10 minutes, we'll be ready. Okay, great, thank you. Here it is, El Tamarindo. We're open, call and carry out. Look at all those signs. Thank you for social distancing. Stop, face mask required. Stop, one person at a time, please. Doesn't look like there's anybody else here. There was like this huge plastic barrier between like the customer and like whoever's operating from that stand. And there was like a little container of sanitized pens to sign receipts. And I picked up my order, a pupusa, a tamale, rice and beans, and plantains. Before all of this, whenever I ordered takeout, all I heard in my head was my mom's voice telling me, you have food at home. But now there are more things to consider besides my mom's voice in my head. Altamirindo is one of the first places I ate when I moved here, and it's one of the reasons why I feel connected to my neighborhood and to DC. Altamirindo was closed for the first month of the pandemic. So part of me ordering food from them came from a place of not wanting to see them go out of business. But at the same time, I was thinking about the risk of leaving my apartment, the health of the people making the food, the drivers that bring it to other people. I was seeing all these vulnerabilities and wondering what are the bigger costs of keeping El Tamarindo in business? I'm thinking about some of the same things when I go grocery shopping. Like when you're stuck at home in the midst of this pandemic health crisis, every decision seems to mean so much more. Like it's not just what am I going to buy? Which store am I going to go to? How do I know if I'm not buying too many things? It's how do I keep grocery store workers safe? And there's also the future of local farms to consider. Right. I'm getting takeout and going to the grocery store. So for me, it's really a mix of these smaller personal questions and big picture questions. They're all variables in this like ethical equation of how I get food. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Fort. This week on Dish City, how do our food choices affect others during a pandemic? How can we be mindful consumers at restaurants and at grocery stores? And what is this pandemic showing us about the ugliness of our food system? So I was thinking about all these questions when I went to go get takeout. And in order to continue grappling with this moral question of supporting local restaurants and how to continue getting takeout, I needed to know what kind of financial and emotional burden Altamirindo's closing had on the people that worked there. So I called up Ana Reyes, the manager at Altamirindo. Her family owns the place. You might remember her from our Pupusas episode. It, it was, our, our operation was nothing compared to what it is normally. 
So that that was kind of um, scary. Every Uber driver, their delivery person that came in, it's, you know, everybody that you came in contact with, we were just scared. Everybody was on edge. Were your parents in the restaurant or your dad no. at least? No, no. Um, both of them were home. I know every time I, <laughs> I come into your family's restaurant, I feel like nine times out of 10, I see your father there. Um, was it weird for him to be home? Did he feel just what was that like for him? It, it's not easy to see a, a 60, 70, 80% drop in your business and, and think logically in how you're going to make this work, you know? And I think the decision to close, it was just really understanding that this was something greater than us. For me, it was also a very personal decision. I'm, um, I'm a single mom. And my dad was staying home. So I, I've been running the business with my dad. It was like, okay, I don't know how this is going to happen. How am I going to leave? You know, and then school was, we'd already started the distance learning. So it was, it was really, it was a lot to take in, to see, you know, to figure out how we were, how this was going to function. Are you doing a lot of business on those delivery apps? I'm kind of curious about them. They're kind of like a... They feel like a black hole to me in terms of understanding how they work and how good they are for restaurants. You do share the percentage that you, you pay is, is quite high. Um, however, I don't know how you, you do get volume. You do get volume. Um, we're kind of dependent on them right now. That's not sustainable where our business is completely dependent on the business that's generated through those delivery apps. Um, so again, we're, we're brainstorming and, and implementing other ways that we can generate some, some, some income. When you say that the business is dependent on these delivery apps, does that mean that like the majority of your business so far this first week has come through those delivery apps? And, yeah. Okay. Yes. And like how do they how do they compare in terms of what percentage gets taken out do you know which apps which platforms are slightly better for restaurants than others i'll just say uh, we get um most of our volume from grubhub so it kind of doesn't matter that you're that you get some percentage taken out of each one if they have enough if they're bringing in enough orders it doesn't you know it makes up for it that's what you're saying yeah can you ballpark a guess of how much percentage they take out of each order? I'd rather not share, if you don't mind. I mean, I think what I'm just curious about is, like, if people are considering doing delivery, you know, what platform should they use? and mm -hmm. Or, like, should they make the effort to go pick it up themselves? Well, it's definitely preferable for us if people order uh, over the phone or come in person, you know, just wait outside because we're not paying those fees because they are hefty. So that's definitely preferable for us. It's hard to hear Anna have to grapple between having orders come from Grubhub where a, a large portion of the order is sent off in fees and on the other hand, having no business at all. Yeah, I think delivery is 
really important for them right now. Like I didn't get delivery because I can just walk to El Tamarindo, but that's not an option for everyone. Um, it's essential for people who want food and want to support, but can't otherwise just walk and get it. And right now it's a lifeline for people like Anna. I think it's just the reliance on these delivery apps in particular that's giving me pause. Yeah, when these apps first started popping up, it wasn't entirely clear to me how they made money. I assume there was some sort of like delivery fee or delivery rate that I paid for, but it turns out that they charge the restaurants too. Like when you see these ads for Grubhub or Uber Eats or whatever, you know, they'll advertise like 30% off your order or whatever, but it turns out that the restaurant ends up paying for that. And that's just one example. There are tons of ways restaurants end up footing the bill for delivery apps. Right. A bunch of major cities are already talking about limiting fees delivery apps charge restaurants. San Francisco and Seattle have already started doing this. And the D.C. Council actually just passed a 15 percent cap for service fees. I'm not sure how delivery apps plan to make up this difference, but my guess is that it's not great for businesses or drivers. But there are other food businesses whose whole models are based on delivery, like they don't have dine-in service. Um, last fall, my, my cousin got me this gift card for a food delivery company called Foodini. Um, and the way they work is that they hire refugee and immigrant chefs to make their home country's food. And they work out of a central commercial kitchen and customers order online to have their food delivered to their homes. And I was kind of wondering if your business has some sort of like delivery based model to begin with, like, are you better off during the pandemic? So I called up Noobsa Philip Vang, who founded Foodini in 2016. Given the social-driven mission of his company and the added pressures of the pandemic, I wondered, how is he thinking about delivery now? For us, inside the kitchen, we've provided masks to everybody, making sure everybody's wearing gloves at all times. We've also shifted to um, move to a three-shift schedule so that we can maintain six feet social distancing in the kitchen and reducing the amount of staff at a certain time working in the kitchen. Um, and then for our delivery drivers, right, we're, we are providing, um, you know, gloves for each driver so that for every different delivery, they can put on a different pair of gloves, um, providing masks um, for drivers, and then making sure that all of deliveries are contactless. So everything is dropped, right, at, at the front door or at the front desk. There's always a, a balance you have to strike with making sure that your people are safe. You can't take 100% of the risk out, but can you take out 90 right? And um, we're reevaluating that every day. Are the cooks and chefs, are they employees? Are they contract workers? You said that, you know, you had been inspired by the gig economy. And I'm just wondering what lessons of that did you implement regarding like employee structure? From the get go, we, we hired everybody as employees of the company. So every, you know, every chef, everybody that we have working in the kitchen are all employees. Um, when we started out originally, like the first year um, we were paying, you know, everybody was an hourly wage um, in terms of, you know, the compensation. Um, but then within the last about two years, we've switched to salary and we started offering benefits, which was, you know, awesome. We, we made a conscious effort to be really focused on, you know, investing in our people. When you're looking at immigrant communities, they are definitely the backbone of the restaurant industry today, and they're the ones putting in a ton of work uh, and sometimes aren't, aren't recognized for it. And are the delivery drivers employees of Fudini as well? Uh, our delivery drivers are contractors. Okay. We have a small core, core team of uh, individual drivers that we've hired on. 
Um, and so they work with us for the bulk of the deliveries. And then we also have um, a delivery partner that has their own workforce that we use if there's like a surge in orders that we have to fulfill. A, a thing that's on a lot of people's minds, I'll say on my mind, is when I'm thinking about food delivery now, now all the people that the food changes hands among before it gets to me, I guess I'm thinking about potential risk and potential harm given that we're in the middle of this global pandemic. And it's caused me to kind of question how I value that service and if like my tips are enough or if my tips go to the person that I think it's going. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the responses we had immediately was given, you know, everything, most of the time deliveries would happen face to face, right? And so people could get um, tips in terms of like cash tips, right? But that's kind of, that's definitely been something that we've been wary of given the situation with COVID-19. And so uh, we implemented, um, you know, online tipping, which is basically every night, you know, customers will get a link, a text link to submit um, uh, a tip to their specific driver. And so every week we will tabulate the routes that our drivers had, who their customers were that they delivered to, and we we give them 100% of the tip. I think I was kind of disappointed to hear that all of the delivery drivers who work with Foodini aren't employees, especially because the company seems to have this kind of like moral or ethical mission behind it. I totally get why you're saying that. Foodini is trying to honor immigrants and some delivery drivers are immigrants too. But I don't know if it's totally fair to judge a restaurant based on whether their drivers are full-time employees or not. Like given the flow of when people order meals, being a full-time driver for one restaurant maybe doesn't make a ton of sense. But besides that, like unless you have a ton of startup money, I'm not sure how realistic it is for a small, independently owned restaurant to hire everyone full time immediately. Like Foodini didn't do that for their chefs when they first started. But once the company got big enough, the chefs got paid more. I think all delivery drivers are vulnerable to the same things right now. And that's obviously something we need to pay attention to. But at least Foodini's drivers have access to masks and gloves and they're committed to doing contactless deliveries. I think their policies seem a little bit more transparent than the policies at bigger companies. We talked to some Uber Eats delivery drivers who didn't want to be recorded for this podcast, and they said their work is really draining. But the alternative is not having a job at all, having no income. So I think we need to think about these delivery apps like on a spectrum. Like you've got these big third-party delivery apps that like steal tips from their drivers. Yeah, I think companies they're not going to make this process easy for you, right? They're not going to be super transparent about their policies and how they treat their workers, but you have to do your research and you have to decide where these companies, big and small, where they fall in your moral spectrum. Coming up after the break, what are the big moral questions we face when it comes to getting groceries? And what has the pandemic shown us about our meat and produce systems? Dish City would not be possible without the support of our listeners. We're a part of WAMU, and it's been a big effort to shift all our show production to our homes. If you want to keep us going during the pandemic and beyond, become a member at wamu.org donate or by clicking the link in our show notes. Thanks. So my partner and I have been trying to grocery shop like every two weeks since like work from home pandemic quarantine time has started. 
But sometimes the stores don't have things that we need and we need to make an emergency run for some staples. So a week or so ago, we went to Sunny's in Parkview, which is like a pizza restaurant turned grocery store type of thing. We figured going there was a slightly better option since we wouldn't have to go to a crowded grocery store. And they were also offering contactless pickup. Yeah. Mm. Oh, boy. It is raining. So, when, since we've been pandemic grocery shopping, we haven't done any de grocery delivery at all. But I think in our sort of like moral assessment of the situation, we figure it's better it's better to like go to the store and do what feels like putting ourselves at risk rather than you know having someone else go to all of these places and i guess increase their risk i don't know it doesn't really make sense now that i've explained it because we're also putting people at risk by going to the grocery store so who knows Safeway, like they try to put every like aisle is one way so that there's less people running into each other. But like if someone's like taking their time in front of like one item and you want to pass them, then you're still like getting up less than six feet away from them. So that's not good. But I, I don't know. I don't feel like I, if I hear like, oh, there's this delivery company that's like doing a really good job protecting their employees and like they can explain that to me like sure but like I'm not trusting Instacart to do anything. Here we are. Yep. Oh, um, I guess I went too far. I'll you turn around. Right no you can just go right here. You sure? Yeah. It's raining. It's fine. We have rain so we pulled up and we called and said we were there and I stood in the vestibule, like near the front door, and a guy came out with a mask and he put our bags on this table and I picked them up and I said, thanks. We went our separate ways and that was it. Contactless, what? Is everything in there? Yeah. You checked? Uh-huh. Including the tote bag? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, how do you think if um, you didn't have a car, you would go grocery shopping? Well, over here, we'd had to go, the only one we can walk to is Walmart. I don't like going there. I mean, we go sometimes, but only when we need a couple things. And you would walk to the, you would walk there? Yeah, we can, the Walmart's super close. If we didn't have a car, like, then we would have to take the Metro. That's true, I haven't ridden the Metro. Yeah, maybe or, since. Or I guess we could ride our bikes. But that's more your thing. I guess I would make you ride your bike. <laughs> more than I already do. It's nice that you're able to support a local restaurant with this grocery run. And it's actually super lucky that you two have a car so you have more choices. But like you talked about, you still got to go to the grocery store sometimes. Yeah, like we said, we're trying to go less, but we're still really struggling to do like what's right when it comes to reducing the risk of exposure for us and for other people. But at least I have that choice, right? Like whenever I do go to a grocery store, 
I see everyone that works there and realize that they don't have that choice. Grocery store workers are continuing to show up to work every day. And we wanted to know, well, what would make them feel safe? Uh, my name is Walker Samad, and I work at Giant Food. I work in Springfield, Virginia, um, and the department is seafood. I'm a seafood manager. To be honest, we didn't know that it was going to be um, that, that crazy. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in my 22 years with, uh, with Giant Food. Uh, I mean, shelves are empty, you know what I mean? And people getting panicked, uh, you know, and it's basically to me, it looks like end of world. Has it changed your work? Like, does, does it mean you're busier? Does it mean you're working longer hours? We are, we are busy. We are working long hours. Uh, sometimes I have to work overtime. Did Giant provide workers with masks and gloves? I yes. mean, I imagine you're working with gloves anyway. Yes, yes. They did provide us with the uh, mask and they gave us gloves as well. Does that make you feel safe at work? Do you feel like it's, you're okay? To be honest, every day I have to pray before I leave my house. Um, you know, um, go with the passion, go with go with the prayers, and uh, come home safe. And you know, serve serve customer uh, uh, safely. What about benefits? Are you getting any like wage increases or bonuses from Giant? Well, right now Giant uh, is giving us ten percent um, of what you make every week uh, that we're getting. Everybody's getting that. And for how long do you know? Well, they recently extended until, I uh, would say, May the 30th or 28th. Does that 10% match the additional risk that you feel like you're taking by going to work? Not really. What would be fair? We deserve more. I know that. We deserve more because we're putting our life on, on the front line to put the groceries for uh, customers so I think we deserve uh, around 20%. Do you think this appreciation when people thank you for your work and for being there and being at work, is that appreciation new or have you always felt that from customers? Since the COVID-19 started, we've been getting a lot of uh, appreciation from customers. I have three kids. I have to come every, every day when I come back from work. I have to sell all my clothes. I have to hop in in the shower before I can see my kids and hug my kids and hold my kids. Cause this is, this is some serious stuff going on. I mean, at the end of the day, we, 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 we all got to pay bills and put the food on the table for our family. My family is really afraid. And you know, majority of people who working, whether it's nursing or grocery workers, they're afraid to go to work. What's the safest way for people to shop right now? The safe way to shop is, is to stay six feet away. Please put on masks. Please put on gloves uh, when you come to the grocery stores. I mean, it's for your own safety and it's for us too. That was a really hard conversation, honestly, for me to have. And it's because I know that he's not the only worker who feels that way. There are plenty of essential workers now, people that whose jobs that we undervalued before and continue to undervalue, but are essential, who say that the added safety measures and the bonuses that they get from their employers aren't enough. Just last week, workers at Whole Foods, Instacart, Target, Amazon, and a number of other major companies organized a strike around this. These are all companies that are making money now during the pandemic because of their essential status, and yet workers say they aren't being protected or compensated enough. 
There are all these vulnerabilities in our food system, like especially for low-wage workers who maybe don't have tons of agency in their workplaces that seems so much more urgent now. We talked to Ellen Polishuk. She was raised in Virginia and farmed for over 20 years. Now she's a consultant for some farms in the D.C. area, and she says these issues have always been a part of our food system. The food system we have is the food system we chose Our most important value is price. Our second most important value is convenience. And so that's what we have been delivered. If if your only measure of goodness is efficiency, then we have a very strong food system. Maybe now we're starting to think, hey, do I care about the people that are working in that slaughterhouse? And so all of a sudden, the public is starting to have different ideas about what is valuable, what matters to us. In that light, with a new set of values, the food system seems broken. It seems like it isn't working, and that's correct. It is not delivering a set of values that we didn't ask it to have before. Think about a cast iron fry pan. A cast iron fry pan is heavy and durable, right? It lasts for generations. They have a certain way of being really strong. But another characteristic of a cast iron is that it's extremely brittle. If you were to go out and mistakenly drop your cast iron fry pan onto the sidewalk, it would crack. It breaks given a sudden stress in a way it was not designed to handle. But if you were to take out side and drop stainless steel pan, yeah, it would get a dent in it. It would still work. That's the difference between just being strong in a certain way and being resilient, able to take stresses and still remain intact. So you're saying that our food system is strong in the flawed way that we've built it, but not at all resilient to the kinds of vulnerabilities that the pandemic is exposing. Exactly. The food system is not built to be flexible and resilient and creative. What we've seen is small farms have been able to say, oh, there's no restaurant to sell to? Okay, I got to get my food to people eating at home. Okay, I'm going to set up an online store. And, And they've been able to respond because they're small, nimble, and they're close to the customer. How many meat processing facilities are there in the United States? Well, I think there's a total of 50 or something. And there used to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Well, when one goes down, it makes a really, 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 really big difference, doesn't it? So that's the kind of uh, brittleness that we've seen in the system. So I think some people listening may not understand what you mean by the food being cheap. You're not saying that all the food out there is affordable necessarily to everyone. You're saying the value of food is low to the average American consumer, right? Yeah, that's a really important distinction. For people who don't have any money, food is not cheap. It's too expensive. But that's not agriculture's fault. That's society's fault. It's a poverty issue, which of course is race-related and you know goes back through the ages. But by and large, it's cheap compared to how much money we spend on everything else. Another aspect of this is the cheapness of labor. I think we've kind of seen this impact that you're talking about and the true price of this now when like, we see these big meat companies 
Their workers say that they're failing to provide proper safety precautions and thousands of people are being sickened with COVID-19 and it's affecting a serious percentage of America's access to meat because these are like the nation's biggest meat producers, Tyson's Food, JBS, USA, Smithfield. Right. The whole system is based on the lowest wage workers in our economy. The, the people that are working in the field, harvesting our vegetables, in um, not just the harvest, but in what we call the wash pack area. All they do is wash vegetables, wash your salad mix, and then put it in those beautiful clamshell containers for you to buy at the grocery store. All those people, and then the meat packing people, most, not all, but most of them are immigrants. And they end up with all kinds of injuries, you know, affecting their health. Our food system relies on disadvantaged and disempowered individuals to to work jobs that are not nice jobs. We're seeing that now. It's like the curtain is being pulled away like the Wizard of Oz. Like, wow, we have such a great country. Oh, look at all this beautiful food we have. It's at the grocery store every day. I can have strawberries every day of the year, even if I live in Minnesota. That's the fantasy that we've been living in. And now COVID comes along and it's pulling back the curtain. And you see what's behind the curtain are people who have really tough lives. That's what it's based upon. These are now our essential workers. Farmers have always known the true cost of food, but haven't always addressed it. We talked to one of Alan's farmer clients, Mike Protis. He owns One Acre Farm up in Montgomery County, Maryland. He delivers boxes of produce to a couple hundred local families. And last fall, he put his foot down and told his customers he wanted to pay his workers more. So I wrote an email to my CSA member saying, just so you know this year, before you signed up, just so you know, everybody's getting paid uh, 15% more, which means you're paying 15%. We're all paying more. We, 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 we've gone too long. I haven't made a profit. Not that nobody cares about farmer money making a profit. I don't care about that. But I haven't paid myself in the last, you know, 10 years really anything worthwhile. We can't expect people that continue working here year after year to make, you know, $10, $12 an hour. We have to pay more. So we're all going to pay more because if we're going to pay, if, if we all are meaning that this is important to us, we're going to have to pay for it. I probably wouldn't have the chutzpah to make that email again. So I don't know if people really want to hear about it right now because they're so inundated with all sorts of other crap they're getting. Maybe when the dust settles, it's not. It's a nice time to start, you know, singing from the rooftops why it's so important to do all these things. But for right now, I think people are so overwhelmed with all the horrible things and the horrible news events and everything else. Maybe that's not the time to be shoving more crap down their throat. The way our food system exists now, the people who harvest and slaughter our vegetables and meat have largely been out of sight and out of mind. But there are people who have to pay for that. Ellen says that's typically been disempowered workers who pay in terms of their health and safety. And Mike wants the customer to recognize the true cost of local produce and pay for it. Is now the time to do that? I mean, I'm going to go with yes, but I know that my ability to consider these issues and to act on them is coming from a place of privilege. If grocery store workers want to be paid 20% more than they are already, I can afford to consider paying 20% more for my groceries. And when it comes to supporting local restaurants, I can afford to get takeout once in a while. I could even walk to the restaurant and get it. 
And this is still not the full picture. Obviously, the people we talk to represent their own restaurants and their own experiences. It's really good to hear directly from the people that I want to support, like Anna. I was really hesitant to mess around with Grubhub, and I still am not going to use them to order food, but at least I better understand what role they play for her and a restaurant like El Tamarindo. And it's good to hear directly from Noopsa about how the morality of using delivery apps isn't always black and white. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly used delivery services in the past, both for takeout and groceries, but I think I'm becoming more hesitant to do that now, not only because of the effects those services might have on the restaurants or grocery stores, but also because of the effects on the people who have to deliver the food. There are places where delivery drivers are full-time employees with benefits and union protections, but I guess I'm just looking harder at which businesses I support and which ones I don't. Right. Listening to Ellen made me question how I get groceries, too. Before, I didn't want to get a CSA produce box because I did not want to be weighed down by, like, nine zucchinis a month. But I seriously started considering it, or at least figuring out a more direct way to get local produce. I think the big questions we have about the food system will get easier for us to grapple with if we can break them up into smaller questions about how we personally get food. Dish City is produced by me, Patrick Ford. And me, Ruth Tam. Our associate producer is Julia Karen, and our editor is Ponzi Rutsch. Our theme music is by Daniel Peterschmidt, and WAMU's general manager is JJ Yor. Anna McDaniel oversees all the content we make here. Talk to us online on Twitter and Instagram at Dish City, and our email is dishcity at WAMU.org. If you love Dish City, tell a friend and review us on your podcast app. It'll help listeners like you find our show. On our next episode, we'll be talking about the moment cafes and restaurants and other small businesses pivoted to something totally different in order to survive the pandemic. We'll be back in two weeks, so hit that subscribe button.